Well, good morning, Forest View. Hi, my name is Nat. I'm the lead pastor here, uh, and I have the important job right now. I need to make sure that this happens. Junior high students, you are dismissed to your session now, so you guys can head out. Uh, happy Daylight Savings Day to all of you. Hopefully you enjoyed your extra hour this morning, and those of you with young children, we're sorry. We hope that you've recovered. We, can't, we don't even have coffee to give you this morning. I just feel like, well, we're glad you are here. Thank you for making the trek. This morning, we are continuing our Back to the Table series, a series that has been focused on the communion table. This is an important practice that we have joined in with, with Christians throughout history have gathered together to celebrate communion. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And for us, this is the centerpiece. This is, this is essentially the focal point we want our services to be about. We love to sing. We love hearing amazing stories about what God is doing in lives, like stories like the Muskrat Dam story. We love to, to uh, hear teaching and to, and to dive into the scriptures and let those speak to us and challenge us. But at the very heart, we gather together to share communion together. And so we want to take time to continue to refresh ourselves. What is it that we're doing? Because this, this meal that we participate in is loaded with significance and meaning. And it not only draws our eyes back to what has happened, but it propels us out into the world. And it fills us with expectation for not only what God has done, but what God is continuing to do through Jesus Christ. And so uh, if you don't have one already, I encourage you to make sure you grab a cup. Uh, it's uh, conveniently packaged for you. It's over there. And uh, we're going to dive into our uh, sermon this morning, our, the scripture we're going to be looking at. Uh, if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be starting at verse, I believe, verse 13. Uh, 23 is where we're going to be beginning. So if you have, I really highly encourage you, whether you have a, an analog copy or a digital copy, uh, it's great to have the scripture right in front of you uh, as we dive through this, this passage together. And I just simply say this, this is a weird and strange passage. It's probably, if you were to go through and like look at passages of scripture that disturb me and make me feel uncomfortable, uh, if we were to go through the New Testament and pick out those, this would be probably number one. And so we're going we're gonna to look at it today. We're going to sit with it a little bit today. Uh, and, and my conviction is that God is going to speak to us today through it. But first, let's, let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we come to you today aware of our deep need for you in our lives. Oh, we come to you in the midst of noise, in the midst of busyness, in the midst of joys and fears and sadness. We pray that you would meet us here in this place and that you would speak to us. For those of us who are incredibly comfortable, we pray that you would disturb us and for those of us who are deeply disturbed and, and going through difficult things, we pray that you would bring comfort. We pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, that's a familiar part. Here's the part where it starts to get a little bit strange. Often we do communion together and we'll read from this passage, and usually we stop right there. And there's good reason for that, as you will hear. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, which seems to be a euphemism for died or death. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So we're going to dive into this passage. We're going to look at it. We're going to talk about it. But first, I think there's some other things we need to, uh, to, to bring to mind, or at least to be aware of. Because for us, we can immediately jump into this, and we don't have all of the information, all of the context that those first Christians were walking through. And, and I think it's important for us to actually start there and then allow that to begin to inform us. Because I would argue that this is a deeply concerning passage. This is one that should disturb us. It should make us feel uncomfortable but it needs to do it in the right ways. Or we should be disturbed by it in the right ways. So, so let's begin. Just, just, we're going to go back. We're going to just push pause on that. And I want to draw your attention to something called the temple. Now, those of you who are familiar with Christianity, you might be aware of this. But throughout the Old Testament, there is this focal point for religious worship for the Jewish people. It is simply referred to as the temple. And the temple was believed to be the significant place where God actually resided in a very profound way. So they lived with this belief that, yes, God is everywhere, that God is present in all places and all parts of the world. Uh, but there was something significant about the temple. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 2, King David, he's talking about this need to go and build a temple. He says this, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. A little bit later on, you'll find in the passage of Ezekiel, chapter 47, verse, or 43, verse 7, he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I live among the Israelites. And then Psalm 132, verse 7, it just simply says this, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And so for the ancient Israelites, the temple was the footstool for God. It was believed to be this connecting point between God, the divine, between heaven and earth. It was seen as the place where God's feet rested. And so when you went to the temple, you experienced this deep intimacy and connection with God. And as you were to travel to the temple, there were sort of different stages or different areas that different people were allowed to go and to be. So if you were a Gentile, which I imagine is most of us in this room right now, you would go to the temple and there was an outer court for you where you could stay, you could be, and you could go, and you could actually go and uh, bring sacrifices and kind of hand those over to other people to be offered on your behalf to God. 
And then there was another court where the Gentiles were not allowed to go, but the Jews were able to go and to worship. And then again and again, as you go closer and closer into the temple, it becomes more and more exclusive. There was less and less space where different people were allowed to go until finally it was just the priests who were allowed to be in there as these representatives of the people of Israel to God. Now, finally, if you were to go all the way in, you would find a location simply referred to as the holiest of holies. And in this place, they would keep the Ark of the Covenant, which was uh, this uh, thing that they used to contain both the Ten Commandments, some manna, a staff of Moses, a number of different things. And it was believed to essentially be this, this profound place of God's presence. In fact, it was so profound that if you were to touch it, it could kill you, or at least that was the belief. And there are actually a story in the Old Testament about someone who reaches out and touches it and dies instantly. And so you have this, there's this deep reverence and kind of this movement from kind of, you could be far away, but as you come closer and closer, it becomes more and more exclusive until finally it's just the priest. And even the holiest of holies, only the high priest once a year was allowed to enter that room and to offer a sacrifice to God while in that room. There was this exclusivity that continues to happen as you move closer and closer to the presence of God. You can imagine for us, if we were to go and travel there today, there would be these kind of these questions. If you were able to go, or sorry, if the the temple still existed today, you would be able to, you would be excluded. You would not be allowed to move all the way in. I'm immediately reminded of an experience I had. Uh, I was a youth pastor before I became a lead pastor here. And uh, early on in my youth ministry, I would take, with a group of other leaders, we would take a group of grade eight students to Trinidad to go and work in an orphanage there. And I remember uh, it was actually my first trip leading it on my own. So I'd done one trip with another leader before, and then it was my turn to go and lead it. Uh, And uh, so I had a team of other adult leaders and a whole bunch of grade eight kids. And if you want a great way to reduce your life expectancy, I highly recommend bringing groups of like 20 grade eight boys and girls to a far off country. It's a great experience. Uh, and so we travel, we travel there and we take a late night flight. We land in Trinidad. We get off the plane. We're going through the airport and we got to go through customs. And so we've got notarized letters for all the kids and I got all their passports and because kids will, grade eights, for those of you who know grade eights, sometimes they have a tendency to lose things like their passports in the middle of an airport um, when you just handed it to them for 13 seconds. Uh, true story. And, and so you're walking through this airport and we go to customs and there's this woman there, this, this Trinidadian woman who's overseeing customs and she goes, oh, what are you doing here? And she sees me an adult man with a whole bunch of grade eight students and kind of this question of like, what's going on here? And so she goes and she just starts to drill me and she wants to see all of the letters and she starts asking all these questions. We hand over all our passports and, and after, and she's doing a great job because rightfully so. I mean, if you're showing up to a new country and you've got a whole bunch of grade eight students with you, you should be asking tough questions. And so uh, finally we get through it. We get our passports back. We go through all the rest of the different things. And I go, we get our luggage. We go, I'm at the front of the line, ready to leave. And I go to check out and I realize my passport has not been stamped. And so the guy's like, you can't leave. <laughs> and, and so I, okay, uh, what do I do? And he said, well, you got to go get it stamped. And so immediately I need to go back to that original customs agent and get my passport stamped. But here's the thing that I learned about the way that the airport was set up and the way I think most airports are. It's one direction. Like that's how it's designed. You're not meant to be going the other way. And so I'm walking through and I'm like trying to explain it to people and the guy's like, oh yeah, just go through these doors 
and just go through these doors and just go through these doors. And so I, I'm going to the one door and it's like, you know, one of those sliding doors and I'm standing there and it won't even open. And the guy is like, what are you doing? You know, like just getting weird looks from people till finally, and it's late at night. There's hardly any people. The flight is, em- is emptied out. And so I finally get back and, and this guy goes, just go through those doors over there. I'll open them up for you. And so I go through and I start walking through and all of a sudden two security guys come up to me and are like, what are you doing here? We need to see your security clearance. And I'm immediately like, uh, passport? <laughs> uh, I need to get it stamped. And the guy's like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be here. This, is, this, this area is off limits to you. And I kind of explained things, and he just rolled his eyes at me, and ultimately he brought me to the place where I was supposed to be. And then the woman at customs, she rolled her eyes at me, but she stamped it, and then I ran back, joined the rest of my group, and got out of there. I, I tell you that story Because if you've ever had an experience where you find yourself in a place where you realize you are not supposed to be there, it is terrifying. If you find yourself in a place where you don't have the permission, you don't have the clearance, it can be incredibly unsettling. And when we think about the temple in the ancient world, I mean, this was a place you needed to have clearance to go and be present there because this was where God was believed to dwell amongst his people. And so you don't just casually walk into the temple because God's presence and specifically getting into proximity of the holiest of holies was something that was taken very seriously. Now, join me, turn over to John chapter 2. We're going to start at verse uh, verse 13. Because it's interesting to see what Jesus' thoughts are on the temple. Again, like I said, this is the religious epicenter for the Jewish people. This is the most important place that you can go. Most Jewish people would travel there, um, even no matter how far away, they would try to get there around once a year. There was all sorts of people who would make the pilgrimage to go and offer their sacrifices there. This is the place where the religious, uh, religious elite, the experts in the law, they all hung out there. This is where the priestly class went around and conducted their various different exercises. And if something significant or meaningful happened in your life, if you experienced a healing, or, or if you found yourself, uh, you, you, uh, you needed something or whatever it was, you would go to the temple because that's where God was believed to have dwelled. Here's what happens. Jesus shows up at the temple. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciple remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. All right, so what begins as an in-depth critique 
about the business practices of the temple. Jesus sees this. He sees the way that they are exploiting people, that he sees this, 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 uh, the temple, which is supposed to be this place where God dwells, which is supposed to show the world what God is like. He sees it being corrupted. And so he goes in there and he flips over tables. He drives them out and says, this is not what this is about. Other, other verses, they talk about him yelling out, calling them in a den of thieves. But what begins is a critique about the behaviors and practices of the temple. We see that morph. Notice he says this, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And immediately his disciples, not immediately, but later on as his disciples reflect on this experience, they, say, they realize that suddenly Jesus, he's not talking about this building He's not talking about this monument. He's not talking about this specific place or the systems or all of the leaders who are represented in this place. He is talking about himself. He is identifying himself as the temple. In the Gospel of Matthew, we hear Jesus just say it in a much more blunt way. He says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. He's speaking about himself. So for the first Christians... They see Jesus, and they believe that suddenly Jesus has brought this incredible, profound presence of God, that there is something significant about him present there in their midst. And as they encounter, as they meet with the resurrected Jesus, he doesn't show up at the temple. He doesn't show up at the religious epicenter of the world. He doesn't suddenly start talking and interacting with all of the religious elites and all of the people of prestige who would have found themselves at the temple. Instead, Jesus begins by showing up to his disciples, and more often than not, he shows up when they are sharing meals together. It's as if the center of God's activity has shifted from being focused on the building and the institution and the structure and all of these different things that were believed to be conduits for God's presence into the world. And suddenly Jesus goes, yeah, I'm not really about that anymore because I'm actually the conduit for God's presence in this world. And instead, we are going to sit and we are going to eat together. For the first Christians... Some of them still begin to go, they still continue to go and interact at the temple, but their focal point, their center of worship is not the temple, it is the gathering for communion together. In the book of Hebrews, there's some really interesting things going on there that I think we miss out on, but I think they draw at this idea of Jesus being the presence of God, the footstool of God Jesus showing us what God is truly like. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to go to Hebrews chapter 9. Um, and there's so much going on in this passage. We could, honestly, we could read through this entire chapter, but I think I just want to highlight a few different things. First off, if you were to read through the book of Hebrews, there are many biblical scholars who think that while it doesn't explicitly mention communion or the Eucharist, it does draw our attention to the practice of communion in so much as they begin to identify Jesus in a bunch of different ways that the first Christians would go, oh, we're talking about communion. Talks about Jesus being the high priest. Talks about Jesus being the sacrifice. Jesus being the new covenant. And Jesus being essentially the, the holiest of holies. The presence of God in our world. 
So if you've got it, I just wanted to read through. Again, we could spend lots of time in this passage, but I just want to start at verse, uh, we'll start at verse 24, chapter 9, verse 24, Hebrews. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. In the following passages after this, it talks about all of the law and the temple and even the holiest of holies as being the shadow of what was ultimately to come or what has come through Jesus. The temple, the holiest of holies, all of the various different religious rituals and rites that the Jewish people would go through. And here we see that actually it's all found in Jesus. It's all summed up in Jesus. We have the clearest picture of what all of these things were pointing to. And here's the interesting thing that we begin to discover. That the temple isn't the holiest place for Jesus' followers. Rather, the church gathered around the table sharing communion together was. We see a movement from the temple to the table. And I think this is important for us as followers of Jesus. Because so often we focus ourselves, we kind of think about the church and what we do as being, we think about it more along the lines of being temple-focused rather than being table-focused. I want to break that down and just explain what that means. First off, when we say temple-focused, it's about being exclusive, it's about my experience at the airport, right? It's about, nope, you don't make the cut. Nope, you don't make the cut. You don't make the cut. You don't make the cut. And it's all about the elite. There's an element of hierarchy and authoritarianism that is present within the table. And so often we find those same mentalities, those same ideas creeping into the church. We find ourselves viewing one another exclusively. We judge one another. We look down on others. We say, you don't have a right to be here or this isn't a place where you're supposed to be. Or, or that's only for people who have achieved this level of Christianity. And we become focused on things like status. And we want to enforce purity codes in an effort to keep sinners out. But when we're a table-focused community, when we're a community that's centered around Christ's presence, not through the institution and the structures, and not through our own purity codes, but rather one where God is present through Jesus Christ as the church gathers around to remember and proclaim and to live as witnesses to his salvation work in the world. We move from being exclusive to being blocking people out, saying, what are you doing here? to suddenly being invitational. Would you come and join us? Come, eat from the table. We move from being hierarchical, 
I didn't say that right, and I'm not going to try again. Uh, hierarchy. We move from thinking about that way, and we move towards thinking about things on a level basis because we're all sinners in need of God's grace, in need of the salvation that comes through Jesus. And so we find ourselves all on this level playing field. And instead of being authoritarian, feeling like we are the ones who should be calling the shots and bossing people around, we come with a sense of humility, needing to listen and discern God's voice in our lives. Instead of being focused on our own status, we are suddenly more consumed with a family-style meal, one where we are all invited to take and be a part of it. And instead of being a place where we are intent on keeping sinners out, when we're table-focused, it's a welcome home party for sinners. Pastor theologian Brian Zahn in his book, Water to Wine, he says this, we thought God was a deity in a temple. It turns out God is a father at a table. So for us as Christians, we live with this deep conviction that God is present as we gather together around this table in the most rich and profound way that we can imagine, in a way that makes, even as we think about and reflect about God's presence in the, test, in the Old Testament temple and in the New Testament temple, even when we reflect and think about that, that that is merely a shadow. It is merely a shadow of what is available, the presence that is present to us now. I mean, in some ways, we just might talk about this, the, the communion table, are gathering around the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, it's the holier of holies. Which again brings us back to the first Corinthians verse that we looked at, this disturbing thing. And so as we gather together to eat, we realize what we are doing is significant and it matters. We realize this is not something we do lightly, it's not just something we just kind of casually do out of routine or rote. Rather, as we engage, as we share in this together, that God is present in a very real and significant way. And that should bring us to a place of humility and should bring us to a place of understanding that if God is at work in this, we need to take it seriously. Now, I want to explain this passage away the first Corinthians passage, just be like, oh, well, it's this, or it's this, or it's this. But I actually think it's more important for us to sit, to sit with it, to sit with the discomfort that it brings. Because it suggests to us that our hearts and our relationship with God and our relationship with one another, the status of those things, it matters as we share in communion together. We are called not to do this in an unworthy manner because God is present and active and working through this. And when you are in the presence of a holy God, it should make you feel humble. And for us, going alongside this, this is an opportunity and in fact, an important opportunity that says, if we want to live as witnesses, if we want to proclaim the reign of God in our world, which is what we do when we share communion together, it's not just simply like reminding us about something that Jesus did. It is about declaring to the world that God was present through Jesus Christ, reconciling us to himself. 
And if we want to do that, we need to take seriously where our hearts are at with God and with one another. So for you, if, if there are people within the church community or people in your life that you are holding on to grudges, anger, jealousy, that's stuff you need, we need to deal with. It's stuff we need to draw out into the light and take very seriously. And so often we get focused on just the individual sins, right? It's just the me sins. But the interesting thing is, is as you read through 1 Corinthians 11, you realize this is about divisions in the church. This is about people living with indifference to the challenges and struggles that, that are present within their community. This is about people coming to the table and living with this complete ignorance of all the other things that are going on in the other people's lives and not caring about them. And so maybe the challenge for you today is just simply what it means to live or to take and eat in a worthy manner is to live with an awareness of everything that other people within this community are going through or other people in this community is going through. The struggles, the challenges, and not to be indifferent to it, but rather to be aware of it. I want to invite uh, Morgan and the team to come back up here, and they're going to lead us in another song. And as we prepare to take communion together, I want to use this time to just, if there's stuff going on in your heart, if there is divisions between you and God, if there are divisions between you and other people, this is, this is time to deal with it. I mean, maybe it's getting up and actually going and talking to that person. Maybe it's sending them a text and saying, hey, we need to talk. But my challenge and my invitation to you today is to realize that we are a people who have moved from the temple to the table and that we would approach the table with the same kind of reverence the Israelites would have approached the temple. Because in the table... In the table, we discover that Jesus is present to us and to his world in such a profound and world-shattering ways. We thought God was a deity in a temple. It turns out God is a father at a table.